This recording is a production of Faith Builders Educational Programs. This presentation was recorded at Teachers Conference 2018, held at Faith Builders from October 12 to 14. Good afternoon. Thank you, Kyle, for that introduction. Um, I want to talk about peaceful classrooms. And I don't know what you think about or what you picture when you picture a peaceful classroom, but I think we all want one, don't we? Um, there's something about peace that, that all of us desire and that I think our students desire. And as Kyle said, I am not a grade school teacher. I never have been, but I have had some experiences that have helped me to, to, to uh, learn about children, how they think, how they operate, how they cooperate. And I hope that I can share some of those uh, tidbits with you today. As you think about your classroom, as you think about the level of peace that's there, as you think about how can I make it uh, more peaceful, more conducive to learning. So uh, rather than tell you uh, just a lot of really nitty gritty how-tos, I don't feel like I have that right. I'm gonna tell you what I've learned along the way. I'm gonna try to explain concepts and terms and I'm gonna give you some ideas and hopefully you can take those and convert them into something that you can use in your classroom, something that'll be effective. I enjoyed what I've heard from Edsel so far. So this is kind of a continuation of his theme of peace, but with a different focus and with a much more nitty gritty, let's get down to the classroom and the students and see how we can make this peace thing work with them. So let me start by just explaining a little bit about what I mean when I say a peaceful classroom. First of all, I, I'm not saying, when I say a peaceful classroom, I'm not just talking about a classroom that's quiet and calm, okay? I'm not talking about uh, candlelight and soft music, although that might help sometimes. It's kind of an external, and it can exist in an environment that's not at all peaceful. Uh, I'm, what I'm talking about can, also, can actually exist in a busy and active environment, okay? Because the peace I'm talking about exists inside people, in their hearts, and it can exist and it should exist inside little people that live and work in your classroom. I'm talking about ideas like security, stability, I'm talking about relationships that are free of undue strain and stress. Now, as people, we're, we're, we're humans, and so as we interact, we cause some strain and stress in relationships. But I'm, there's something like undue amounts of that. Um, that's the lack of peace that I'm talking about. I'm talking about people and groups of people that are at rest in their spirit. Even while maybe on the outside, they're loud and boisterous and active. But if they are loud and boisterous, it's not in an appropriate kind of loud and boisterous. And it's not because they're acting out or because they're insecure or hypertense or afraid. It's not, it's not because they can't calm down when it's time. So I'm talking about a freedom from anxiousness and fear. I'm talking about a pervading trust. That's what you want in your classroom. Because 
that's when children can learn. I'm going to tell you a little story. This is a story about a boy named Andrew. Andrew came to the boys' camp where I was working as, I think, a 14-year-old. <clears throat> he came because he was expelled from school. He was failing almost all of his classes. He was uh, contentious with his teachers. He had almost no true friends, constantly acting out, getting attention, uh, and making a scene wherever he went. He ended up at camp, and he spent about two years there. I was his counselor, one of his counselors, and just had the privilege of working with Andrew on all the stuff in his life that was contributing to that. And over lots of time and lots of effort and lots of working on lots of different things, which I don't have time to explain right now, Andrew began to change. And after about two years, he was ready to graduate and leave the camp. And when that time came, Andrew said, I want to go back to school. And he didn't just want to go back to a new school and start a clean slate. He said, I want to go back to my school. Why? Because he wanted to show them that he was different. And he wanted a chance to do differently. And he believed that he could. And he did. He went back to his school. He enrolled in the same grade that he was when he came out in this, with the same class. And he did well. He passed his courses. He got good grades. He got along with his friends. In fact, over time, he began to be respected and became a leader in his class. By the time Andrew was a senior in high school, he actually worked part-time for the principal and did janitor work after school. He had the keys, literally, of the school in his pocket. How can that happen? How can children change like that? Well, something was really wrong in Andrew's life at first. There was a lot of unrest. There was a lack of peace. But when peace began to enter his heart and his life and his relationships, and he made peace with God, and we, he made peace with his peers, when he made peace with his authorities, he could learn. His problem wasn't an academic problem. Now, there are things like academic problems. There are learning disabilities. But Andrew didn't have one. He was still failing his classes, all of them. See, there's something about peace that opens doors to learning, and that's what I want you to remember today. Even if a child has a learning disability, an environment that has the right amounts of peace will unlock doors and open them so that they can learn better. And there are some things that you need to think about and care about in your classroom to create that environment of peace. We're going to have a little bit of vocabulary here. I'm going to introduce a word. Some of you may know what it means, but it's not a commonly used word in the English language. Milieu. It sounds French, doesn't it? I think that's where it came from. What does milieu mean? Does anyone know? Go ahead. What's around you, okay? Your environment. Maybe even specifically a social environment, but it could include physical things. Um, Cambridge Dictionary. 
says, the people and the physical and social conditions and events that provide a background in which someone acts or lives. Milieu. What is the milieu of your classroom? Milieu is kind of like, it's, it's the swirl of social and emotional influences that kind of create a culture. Culture is another good word for milieu. What is the milieu of your classroom? I want you to think about that as I talk because that milieu is, is influential and you can impact it and it can impact you and it can impact your students and your students are part of it. So think about that mix, that swirl of relationships that creates something that your students live and work and study in, milieu. All right, another concept. This one's not French. Pound cake. This is a camp concept, and we talked about pound cake at boys' camp. We used to say camp is like a pound cake. Now, what do we mean by that? Pound cake is made of ingredients. You stir them together in the right proportions, and you bake it just right, and it's a beautiful thing. It's a tasty thing. It's a wonderful thing. But if you miss an ingredient, or if you think you can make it with just two ingredients, or if you don't mix them in the right proportions, or don't bake it just right, it's not pound cake. Or if you call it pound cake, it doesn't taste like pound cake, and it's not going to be good. Because we said that camp is made up of ingredients, and we have to be thoughtful about that. And we have to make sure that we don't think that it's just this thing. If we just do this, then camp's going to work right, and it's going to be effective. And it's not just this over here. So we need to think about balancing our emphases on all the right things, and mixing them just right, and baking them just right. And then we have an outcome. We have something that's effective. Your classroom is like a pound cake. It's made up of ingredients that when mixed in the right proportions and added together and baked just right, it's a beautiful thing. It has an effect. That's just a word picture to help you think about, maybe to ask the question, what are the ingredients that I'm putting into my classroom? And are they at the right proportions? And am I putting in too much sugar and not enough flour? Am I, am I focusing too much on relationships and not enough on academics? Am I being too strict? Am I not being strict enough? There's all kinds of ingredients. I'm only scratching the surface. But think of your classroom as a pound cake, something that's a mix of ingredients, and ask yourself, how am I doing with the recipe? If it's not coming out right, maybe you need to go back and tweak the recipe. Now I want to talk about a scripture reference and introduce another term or idea. There's a passage in Isaiah 32, and this is actually a prophecy about um, one of the kings of Judah. I think it's Hezekiah. But it's also, I think, a, a shadow of the Messiah. And he's talking about the Spirit. And this is what it says in Isaiah 32, verse 15. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high... And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. 
My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. We use this reference often at camp. And the, the, the phrase that we homed in on was, the effect of righteousness will be peace. Because one of the things we were trying to do was to, was to, was to encourage peace in, in lives and in a milieu that was just kind of geared toward the opposite. And so we were constantly working toward peace and working against this force that was trying to build unrest. And we said, the way we get there is righteousness. And we actually condensed that word a little bit. I hope I'm not butchering the meaning of this verse, but we use the term rightness. Or just right. Uh, righteousness is a, is, a, is a term that we use a lot, but unfortunately it, it kind of carries some baggage with it. We don't generally go around saying, I want to be righteous, uh, because we are well aware that we struggle with self-righteousness, and that's kind of comes alongside righteousness sometime, and we want to steer away from that. So let's not worry about righteousness. Let's just talk about rightness. And the, the way we use this is to say that when we're working with children, the way we can promote peace in their lives and in their hearts is we start to build in order. Unrest is a kind of disorder. Peace is order. And so with children, you start with the very simplest of things. You start with an orderly schedule in their day. You start with basic, effective routines, and you teach them to follow them. There's a right way to brush your teeth. And we said that as we taught little boys how to brush their teeth every day, that's teaching them rightness. And as they learn rightness, they learn about righteousness. And when their life is lived moment by moment, doing things right, they learn about peace, and their life becomes more peaceful. It's a physical avenue into a spiritual truth. So think about the rightness of the way you do things in your classroom. The very simple things that you can teach your children to do right will make a difference and will promote peace. There's a right way to hold a pencil. There's a right way to get in line to go out for recess. There's a right way to do a lot of things. Now you can go overboard on this and you can think, how can I as a teacher do everything right? I'm not telling you to do everything right. This is more achievable than you think it is. It's not about doing everything right. It's about, it's about caring about what's right and trying to help your children care about that. Because when we care about what's right, we're going to live more peaceful lives the work of righteousness is peace. Peace is a byproduct of doing right, being right. I'd like to talk about rules now. Rules are an important part of classrooms, aren't they? Rules were an important part of camp, too. But we tr here again, for the sake of our children, we tried to keep this really simple and achievable, and we said there's two rules of camp. Does that sound like someone else? I think Jesus said there are two commandments. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. At camp, we said there are two rules. Do everything with a good attitude and do it with your group. Now, we weren't trying to mimic Jesus' rules here or replace them. 
but we, tried, we were trying to keep it simple, and we were trying to boil it down to something that was fundamental. See, Jesus said, on those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, right? Everything that he taught, everything that the scriptures promoted was kind of hanging on those two rules. They were fundamental. And so at camp, we took two rules and we said, we're going to hang everything at camp on these two rules. We, can you think about how a place where everybody is focusing on trying to do things with a good attitude and everybody is submitting to and cooperating with their group, the, the group that they belong to, how much of a beautiful place that could be? Well, camp was just a constant struggle to get boys to follow those two rules. <laughs> Believe me. But they are fundamental. There is something really important about attitude. But it's hard to have rules about attitude, right? That's where, that's where we kind of get stuck. Let's talk about that a little bit. Another reference, this one from the New Testament in Matthew 23. We aren't the only people in the world that got stuck with this whole thing of rules. In Matthew 23, verse 1, Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. Jesus said, Follow their rules. Jesus said his disciples should follow the Pharisees' rules. He did. I just read it. But, he said, do not do according to their works. What was Jesus trying to say there? Do what they say, but don't do according to their works. Do what they say, but don't do it the way they do it. Follow the rules, but don't follow their attitude. What was the Pharisees' attitude? They say and do not do. They bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. The Pharisees were mean. They did everything right. They followed the rules, but they had a bad attitude. They were mean. They themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. They weren't fair. They do all their works to be seen by men. They were proud. And Jesus said to his disciples, Follow their rules, but don't follow their attitude. Can you have rules and, at, and focus on attitudes at the same time? I think you can. I think you need both. But I think you need to really think about and work hard on the attitude side of the equation. Not at the expense of the rules. You need rules in your classroom. You need to enforce them. You need to be fair. You need to have good rules. But in doing so, never forget the attitude side of the equation because if you do, you're going to have a, a system that's as cruel as what the Pharisees had. There's this thing um, in psychology called behavior modification. We actually use that sometimes without knowing. Behavior modification is simply a system of of rewards and punishments, where if you do this bad thing, you get this punishment. If you do this good thing, you get this reward. And we do these kinds of things. We even have them in our schools. Things like merits and demerits is a good example of behavior modification. I don't think it's a wrong thing. Hear me out. But if that's all your system is, then it's like the Pharisees had. 
And if you're not somehow in, in integrating a focus way to promote and to affirm good attitudes and to call out and deal with the bad attitudes, you're going to have a system that does not promote peace in your classroom. You're going to have this undercurrent of tension and unrest. It's going to feel about like a room full of Pharisees. And children you know can be really mean. And some of the best ones at following the rules can be the meanest. And when you have a system like that, things just get all turned around. And you're trying to, on the surface, it might look controlled, controlled because everybody's afraid not to follow the rules. But there's just this undercurrent of fear and jealousy and competition that's just constantly going on. And children, especially sensitive children, emotionally sensitive children, can't learn well in that environment. I have a story to illustrate it further. When I was in college, I did an internship at a place called Adolescent Day Treatment Center. This was a secular uh, behavioral center for children that were troubled and, and weren't functioning well. And most of them weren't functioning well in a normal school setting. So we, it was kind of like an alternative school. And there was a variety of programs involved with it. And I was, in my internship, I was there as a worker and as a helper. Adolescent day treatment had a completely behavior modification model. Everything was about if you do this, you get candy. If you do this, you get extra free time. If you do this, you can watch a movie. If you do this, you can go to the game room. If you do this, you go sit in the hall. If you do this, you get a time out. If you do this, if you do this. And that's all it was. There was no emphasis on good attitudes. There was no emphasis on what's in my heart. There was no emphasis on what goes on behind the scenes. And it was one of the most frustrating systems I've ever worked under. Because there were scenarios like this. You have Chris and Ben. Chris is a little boy that is very emotionally unstable. He just, he, 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 he's got a short fuse. Every little thing sets him off. He's bouncing high one minute and down in the dumps the next minute. He's what we call emotionally disturbed. He's a wreck. So there he is. And here's Ben, two years older than him. Ben got in trouble in school, got into the wrong crowd, started doing a little drugs, got caught. Ben's, not, Ben's a lot more emotionally controlled. He can think through things and strategize. But he's got a bad attitude, and he's mean. So here comes game time. And Ben says to Chris, play in a game of pool. Chris knows that Ben's smarter, stronger, and older. He's going to beat him. But he can't say, I don't want to, because that's sissy. So he takes him on. Besides, he wants the attention from Ben, because Ben's one of the big boys. But all through the game, Ben is really slyly taunting Chris. And he beats the game and gets his little digs in. Chris blows, throws the pull cue across the room. Teacher comes into the room. What happened? Who do you think steps forward? Ben. Yeah, we were just playing a game and doing this and this, and Chris got mad and threw the pull cue. So he's kind of on the teacher's side, right? He's the one that's telling on the bad guy. So Chris goes to the hall for a timeout. 
and Ben winks at one of his friends as Chris is walking out of the room. See, Ben followed the rules, but he had a bad attitude. And Chris's behavior, let me be clear here, Chris was wrong, and his behavior needs to be addressed. But in that system, it only addressed Chris's behavior, but not Ben's. These kind of things happen in Mennonite schools, too. And that's why I say you need to think very carefully about how you, on one hand, promote and affirm good attitudes. And on the other hand, how you call out and deal with bad attitudes. And if your system is entirely based on rewards and punishments, you will teach your students that I will only do good if I can get a reward, and I will only avoid the bad if I'm going to get punished. And you can actually train the more emotionally stable bad attitudes to think through that and strategize and think about how can I get the most rewards while avoiding the most punishments. And you'll actually create a consciousness in them that I only get punished when I'm caught or seen. It's a system that focuses on either being seen while doing good or being not seen while doing bad. Does that word ring a bell with you? The Pharisees did what they did to be seen. Make sure you teach your children that there are intrinsic rewards and punishments. Even if I don't see you, you will get a punishment if you do wrong. Number one, your conscience will bother you. You won't feel good about that thing. That's a punishment. Number two, ultimately, everyone is held responsible for their actions. So you need to think about these things, talk about these things, and promote these things in the way you do things in your classroom. Because if you don't, you're going to have a Pharisaic system. It's not going to be a system that promotes peace and learning. And it's actually going to promote the most disruption for the children that are the most unstable. They're the ones that are, always end up being the bad guys in this system. And it mimics what you see in the New Testament with the Pharisees. They had the bad attitudes, followed all the rules, but it made all of the other people that couldn't function well act out and look bad. Two more terms here to just maybe help you think a little bit more about this. And now I'm thinking particularly of the Chris type of person, the emotionally unstable one. They tend to get your focus because they act out, they make the scenes, they visually disturb the peace. And again, they need to be dealt with, all right? But here's some ways that you can help think about those kind of people. You have a thermometer in your room, maybe more than one, and I'm not talking about an instrument that hangs on the wall and tells you the temperature. It's a person. The Chris type of person is a thermometer. They tell you the temperature in the room. They can't help it. It just comes out. Now, you generally don't like that because they are always having behaviors that you have to deal with. And they seem like the disruption. But be aware, they may only be translating the tension, the heat, that's actually coming from somewhere else. So when, when Chris had to, through the pull cue and had to go to the hall, somebody should have been saying, I wonder why he did that. Why was he so mad anyway? 
Was it just because he lost? Maybe something else was going on. So learn to appreciate what the little Chris's in your classroom do for you. They tell you the temperature. And if Chris is calm and he's sitting at his desk and he's reading, you can sit there and think, wow, something is going good in this room. I wonder what it is. Let's keep doing it this way. <laughs> but if he's bouncing off the walls and acting out and getting into all kinds of trouble, you need to deal with that behavior. But you should also, in the back of your mind, be asking the question, I wonder where this is coming from. I wonder if he's picking up some things from someone else or something else. Maybe it's not another person that's agitating him. Maybe it's the schedule. Maybe it's the curriculum. Maybe it's, I don't know what, any other thing. But, and it doesn't mean that you need to get rid of that other thing. But at least if you're aware enough to think about the fact that something might be causing this little thermometer to just go shooting up and registering high temperatures, maybe this is an unnecessary thing. And if I can find it, I can eliminate it. And we can let that temperature go down a little bit. It's another word we used at camp a lot because Chris can so easily become the scapegoat. His behavior is so visual that when things go wrong in the classroom, he's the one showing it more than anyone else. And so he gets all the blame. And the class kind of assigns everything that goes wrong to him. He, he carries the blame for everybody, just like the scapegoat in the Old Testament carried the blame for the whole camp. Don't let Chris become the scapegoat. Be very wise here about that kind of thing happening. Because when that happens in your mind, you're going to be focused on him in a way that isn't fair to the others, but it's not fair to him either. Just be wise in how you assign blame for the disruption or the lack of peace in your classroom. This is something that comes with experience. Don't be too hard on yourself if you're a new teacher. It takes a lot of time to figure these kind of things out. But do aspire to learn how to do this and uh, be, be perceptive and aware that just because one person is acting out the most. There may be, that doesn't mean that that person gets all the blame for everything that goes wrong in the classroom. It's just kind of a human tendency to make this kind of thing happen, so be aware of it. Okay, uh, moving on, uh, more ideas here. Um, these are two things now that are helpers in promoting peace in your classroom. You're gonna laugh at this one. I'm a believer that the idea of fun is deeper than you think. Let me explain that. I, I mean, it's a deep concept. It's profound. Fun is profound. When you're dealing with children, especially. So uh, do you have fun with your students? Do you ever have times where you just kind of kick up your heels and just act silly and childish? Because you're so excited about what you're doing whether it's a lesson you're teaching or a science experiment, or maybe you're just out in the playground and they're playing tag and you're playing with them and you run like crazy and there's the fastest guy in the whole grade and you get him caught and <laughs> and you just squeal for joy. 
the thing that's profound about having, and, and you know what, it took me too long to learn this at camp because as a new chief, I was so worried about doing things right and I was so stressed out about doing them wrong and I was trying so hard to be successful and I was so afraid of what's this guy gonna do and what am I gonna do about it and, and it just kind of inside I was all balled up in knots and nervous and when you're that way, you, you can't have fun. It's really hard anyway. See, when you, have, when you kick up your heels with your students, that tells them something. You're, for once, you're speaking their language. You're being just a little bit childish, and they like that. Because it tells them that you delight in them, on their level. And that's where the profoundness comes in. Because delight is a really, really powerful force. When your students know that you delight in them, let, let me back up, when you have fun with them, they sense that you delight in them. And when you delight in them, they trust you, they respect you, you become awesome in their mind, and they will learn from you. You can actually teach them. So if you're the kind of teacher that is, is, uh, tends to be controlled and trying really hard to get it right, maybe sometime you just need to break out of that a little bit Make sure the principal's not watching and do something really silly and do it just for the fun with your students and see how they respond. It might kind of shatter that tension in the room and promote a little bit of peace. This is a completely different concept, but one that's very important, one that we focused on a lot at camp. Children, and here again, especially emotionally unstable children, need time to transition from boisterous activities to calm activities. I should probably have written at the top, I see some of you strangers. Setup time is the concept. So setup time, what do I mean by that? At camp, we thought of the day, if we would have charted or graphed the day, in a line, it would have had waves like this that went up and down. And these waves uh, illustrated the height of activity. And the lows were calm times, and the highs were more active, loud, boisterous times. And we always said that uh, we don't go straight from a game of prisoner's base to bedtime, okay? Because prisoner's base is very active and we're running and yelling and the boys are all worked up and stirred up and physical and their blood is pumping and they're being a little competitive so there might be a little bit of some things going on there and they need some time to go down the slope and then maybe way over here they're ready for bed. So we had to be strategic about, okay, so what is a little less active than that? And, what, and we call this setup time, getting set up to go to bed or getting set up to eat lunch or getting set up to go to the shower house. So we had to think about, is the next activity a little calmer and calmer and calmer and then back up? So, and you, you'd know this better than I do, but when they come in from recess, you can't just, I mean, one minute they're running and screaming on the playground and you, okay, everybody sit down and get out your books, we're gonna do reading. It, it's like you can almost hear the gears grinding. We're going from high gear to low gear, and it's, it's just a, a little tip, a little trick. Maybe you wanna think about, you know, three minutes of something that's medium, and then low, 
all right? And don't, don't grind their gears too much. Children aren't very good at that. I mean, I even do this as a parent. I, I know well that, you know, pillow fight in the living room is not the best setup time for bedtime. Although it seems like that's when those kind of things happen for some reason. So, okay, everybody, go to your room, get your jammies on, and get out a book, all right? And then 15, 20, 30 minutes after that, I'm ready to kind of make my rounds and tuck them in bed and talk to them and say their prayers. See, they need that setup time. Wind down. Think about how you can use that for, to promote uh, a, a better atmosphere. I'll just to stick this little tip in, too. This is, a, this is a neat one that I never heard before camp, and it, it is so, so true. It, but it's, it's counterintuitive. Stop an activity while it's still going well. You know what I'm talking about? And it's so hard to do because if you say, okay, everybody stop, and you're right in the middle of a game and everybody's having fun, they're going to say, aww, and the whole class is just going to go, aww, can we go five more minutes? But in that five minutes, here again, if you were to chart it, you know, the game goes like this, and then at some point, you know, we all have an attention span, and at some point, it's going to start going like this. And people are going to start having a little less fun. They're going to start getting a little tired of it. And right then is when the bickering and whining starts and all kinds of chaos can really, it can, the curve can really go down fast from there. And so don't wait till it's down there. It's so easy as a leader to wait until things go bad and say, okay, we're going to stop. But do you see how as a habit that, that can form and create just kind of a bad feeling at the end of everything? So be aware of that. I know with a, in a school situation, you have a schedule to stick to, and so this might not always be real easy. At camp, our schedule was fairly fluid, and so we could kind of stop and start things with a little more flexibility. So if you, if you if, but here, here's, here's the tip. Be really perceptive for when that peak is in the activity, and everybody's loving it, and then as soon as you see little tiny signs that it might start to drift off, okay, everybody, time to stop. <laughs> stop an activity while it's still going well. They, they won't like you initially for it because all children don't like to stop something that they're having fun with. But it's just plain smart because <laughs> activities go downhill. So don't wait until every activity ends up in a fist fight to cut it off and move on to the next thing. Okay, enough on that. Two harmers when it comes to peace in your classroom. Competition. This is a big subject, and I'm not even going to scratch the surface here. I just know that you should be really careful about competition. Competition is, it can be a good thing. It can be very motivating. And when I talk about competition, I'm talking about competition in uh, academics or in physical things. And it's funny here how this can be kind of a converse relationship where, you know, students know how they measure up with other students. And uh, you as a teacher have some controls there to keep the competitions friendly. But too much competition, here again, doesn't favor the Chris types. And when they feel a lot of com competitiveness in the classroom, can really start to interfere with their ability to just learn with an open mind. I can still remember first grade. My first grade teacher uh, used competition to teach us numbers and letters. And I can still remember how scared I was 
when those times came around because I was so afraid I was going to be last or I was going to be far down the list and I knew who was at the top and I knew I never beat her, but I could at least be third or fourth. That's how much that's etched in my mind. And my second grade teacher must have done better when it came to reading because I don't even remember how she taught us to read. It wasn't all that stressful. I guess I just learned. <laughs> but I remember that little bit of competition in first grade and I remember how stressful that was. At camp, we were always careful. Um, there are ways to be creative about competition and use them. Use competi competition doesn't need to end up with a loser. Did you know that? Think about some, some games, and this is really novel if you think about it, but think about uh, a game called King Base. Who's the loser? See, as the game proceeds and you get caught, you join another team, and the game ends with everybody on the same team. So who won? Who lost? Even the last person to get caught, you could think of them as a loser because they weren't on the winning team, and yet they're kind of a winner because they were the last one to get caught. Fox and Geese works this way, too. There's not a losing team at the end. Everybody's on the same team. And the, one, the whole crowd of people that got caught the last guy can feel good about ending the game. And the last guy can feel good about being the last one caught. So there are some games that are less competitive. Well, they're still competitive, right? Because there's motivation to tag people. But you don't end up with a loser. And at camp, we really focused on those kind of games because those were the kind of games that emotionally unstable children did better with. They had enough of losing in their life. They didn't need more chances to lose. So you might want to think about that, both in your academics and in your play. A am I promoting win winning together, or am I leaving some losers behind? Sometimes the sense that I'm always losing motivates me to really win when I can. And ironically here, the, the boy that struggles with reading is going to be the biggest boy in the class. And so he feels like a loser by the end of reading class. But just wait till recess. And then he'll tend to bully the little girl that's the best reader because that's where he's the winner. And so you can have this thing going back and forth. And you get some really unhealthy culture going on there. If, if you sense a widening gap between the highest functioning and the lowest functioning children in your classroom, there's probably too much competition. Like the lowest functioning just keep struggling worse and worse, and the highest functioning ones, because high functioning children actually can utilize motive, uh, competition very well. They're not afraid by it, they're motivated by it. But the lowest functioning ones get so tied up in knots over it that they can't learn. And so that's why that gap will tend to widen if there's too much competition in the classroom. Another harmer. This is camp term terminology here. Sometimes at camp, you know, wh when you lived and worked with boys long term, you, you kind of got to know them and you kind of got to understand 
what, what, you got some feelings now and then that you get this feeling that something's not going right. You wouldn't know what it is. You couldn't see anything on the surface, but something just did not feel right. And when that kind of thing happened, we, we would always ask, I wonder if there's a rat in the wood pile. And what that simply meant was well, that was kind of code language for is there, is there some secret hidden wrongdoing that the counselor doesn't know about, maybe a boy or two does, but it's going unseen. That kind of stuff creates undercurrents in a group. It can wreck the milieu. And, and, and it can just eventually just pervade the whole place. And it can go unseen for quite a while, but if you get those kind of feelings, but you're not seeing anything, I think you should get really curious at least and become extra watchful to see if there's a rat in the wood pile. And please understand, we're not calling people rats here. These are deeds, okay? <laughs> and it's, it is hard to tear the wood pile apart. It's not fun, but sometimes that needs to be done. We just need to go start grabbing firewood and chucking it off and, and find that rat and deal with it so that things can be peaceful again. So if you just have this unsettled feeling about your classroom, um, be, be very perceptive, be very aware, put those eyes on the back of your head, add extra ears, and be really watchful. You might need to do some drastic things to find that, but you will never have peace in your classroom as long as there's rats in the woodpile. Okay, two just little extras here. These I might call evaluating tools, ways that you can think about and understand the milieu of your classroom. Uh, the first one has to do a little bit more with individuals, maybe understanding an individual. I'm gonna flip this around. At Boys Camp, we actually had a little uh, a chart or a graph, I guess you would say, that um, illustrated a child's functioning over time in the program. And th this is not going to apply perfectly to the classroom, and it's probably not going to apply very well when, we're, when you're thinking about learning problems, but I think it applies, applies really well when you're thinking about behavior problems. So here, here's our graph. Um, This is time with uh, the child's entrance in the program on the left and his exit from the program on the right. And this is, um, what did we call this? A function, maybe? Higher would be better functioning, lower would be worse functioning, okay? And the line looked something like this. Now this is a generalization and all generalizations have their issues, but I want to name some, part, some points on this line and then explain them. This is the honeymoon. This is struggle, crises, decision, and progress. And we use this as a teaching tool to help the counselors understand by observing the boy's functioning where he might be in his time at camp. 
sometimes strangely, when a boy came to camp, although they came with severe behavior problems, they would behave amazingly well. They would be good little boys and be really nice and really respectful. And we said, that's a honeymoon. It's not going to last. <laughs> and we expected it to wear out after a while. And we knew that when it did wear out, it was going to go downhill. But here's what I want you to think about, and this is what the, the most helpful for me, is that a struggle naturally leads. And you know, really, this line is way too straight. It probably looks a lot like this, where there's these little struggles, and they get deeper and deeper, and then finally there's a crisis. And in those little struggles, sometimes they kind of pull themselves out and do better for a while and then struggle again, but each struggle gets a little deeper, a little worse. But the crisis is a very, very difficult time in the child's life where all the stops are pulled and they're kind of at the end of their rope. And it's a very difficult time for the people that are caring for the child. But it's a very necessary thing. That's the hard part to kind of get a handle on. The reason it's necessary is because it opens the door for this like nothing else will. And this decision can be different. This line doesn't have to go up. It can go down from here, depending on the kind of decision or the lack of a decision. But here's what you need to know as a teacher. When you, the natural human tendency when we see children struggle is we don't want them to struggle. And especially in a classroom, struggle is disruptive. And you're well aware that if a child is really struggling, the rest might not be learning. So you have, you have a dilemma here. And I, I'm, I'm not saying the answer to this is very simple. And this is one where you need to talk to your co-teachers and to your principal and get some help with it. But when you're thinking about the child that is struggling, the temptation is to just try to eliminate that struggle. And let's just kind of hold them up here if we can and not let them go down. But at camp, we said, let them go down. And the beauty of it was it was a, a place and a program tailor-made to allow space for struggle. And I realize that your classroom isn't that. But I still think this concept is helpful, and it might help you with a child that's struggling. And at the very least, to make sure that if you have a child that reaches crises in your classroom, remember that here's where you come in. When a child reaches the bottom, you are there to help them understand what their options are, what decisions they could make, and to encourage them to make the decision or the decisions that will lead them up this way. And truly, this line is wavy too. One more little evaluating tool, and this, this um, can be used to evaluate an ind individual and a group. Um, do, do you ever have unstructured time in your classroom? Free time? I don't know what you call it. What do you call it in a classroom? Kind of a time where they can't do just whatever they want, but they can kind of choose. You can either uh, do flashcards or read a book or um, play a quiet game or do checkers or what, I don't know. 
Do you do that ever in the classroom? Sometimes. A little scary for the younger grades, right? Well, what you need to know about unstructured time is, n number one, um, obviously not too much of it, because structure is really good for children. And structure is that thing that, that promotes peace because of the order involved. But too much structure isn't good either. And unstructured time, number one, it really, it's an indicator. We, at Camp, we all, always used to say that the best functioning group can handle unstructured time well. But a low functioning group will fall apart if you give them five minutes of unstructured time. So if, if in unstructured time, you're your class does well, that's good. That's a good indicator. That means there's a peaceful milieu and when, when I'm not under control of others and I can at least a little bit decide what I want to do, I can actually make good decisions and do something productive. But the second thing about unstructured time that is really, really helpful, if you can at least work toward having valuable unstructured time is because the unstructured time is when the creative juices really come out. Because those children have ideas in their head about what they would want to do if they could do whatever they wanted to do. But if you're structuring their whole day, they can never do that. So at camp, when we had 20 minutes, we got done with our work early and we had 20 minutes before it's time to go up for supper, that's when Howard got out his guitar and started working on the new tune. And Buddy would go to the wood tent and get out a saw and start building a craft. And uh, Jimmy and Johnny would go to the wood corral and they invent a new game that's made with a stone and a stick and a string. See, that, that's, that's unstructured time when, when there's a peaceful milieu in the group. Children are at rest in their hearts and they, they, can, they can take a freedom and be creative and productive with it. So again, maybe, maybe use that how your class does with unstructured time as a little way to evaluate them. Um, and if they're not doing well, this is, don't, don't, don't take it hard. This is not a reflection on you. But it might be something you want to work toward, having a, a function in your classroom so that they can make use of at least a little bit of unstructured time and see what kind of things develop from that. Unstructured time is real life. It's really... As an adult, if you think about it, from the time I was, now I have a job where there really aren't people telling me what to do all day long. I know what my role is, I know what my responsibility is, but when I get to my desk in the morning, I can decide if I'm going to check my email, or if I'm going to check the weather, or if I'm going to go talk to some of my supervisees, or if I'm going to do this job or that job, or tear into the to-do list. I can decide. But that's, that's maturity. That's an adult. I'm supposed to be able to do that. And at the end of the day, I should be able to look at my day and say, I did something. I was productive. I was creative. So little children, they're on this path toward that. And a little bit of unstructured time might give them a space to experiment there. It's time to close. Um, I feel like I've just kind of jumped around a, a, a bunch of different concepts. I, hope they, I really hope they've been helpful. I hope that uh, you can at least take some of these things uh, back to your school and your classroom and think carefully about them. Maybe talk about them with your co-teachers or your principal and see if there's ways where you can evaluate the milieu of your classroom and think about the ingredients that are there and which ingredients need to be adjusted a little bit to come up with a beautiful 
tasty pound cake. And remember, most of all, that peace is a byproduct of righteousness. Where there is righteousness, there is peace. And as you teach your little children righteousness, you are promoting peace in their hearts and their lives and in the classroom. And peace, a peaceful classroom is a classroom where the doors are wide open to learning. So thank you for listening and God bless you. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.